Thank you, Erica. Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. A few things before we move right into the sermon and the message this morning. Uh, one, and Alicia plugged it last week. Christy plugged it, but today is an important meeting for our kids' uh, ministry. And just to be clear, what we're asking for as a beginning ask is for all of you to consider, some of you have been talked to about this, uh, serving once a month for the next five or six months, so it's five or six times, as a beginning, as a start in volunteering in the ministry. So everything you need will be in this room to get going uh, right after the service. So I want to encourage you to uh, stick around and attend uh, that orientation meeting and as well as the, the live scan, which is a part of our onboarding process. And also, uh, one more thing, I want to introduce you to someone. If we could put her picture up on the screen. Uh, this is Elsie Jo Celia Chappelle. Uh, she was born on Tuesday. So some of you have heard about that. I think if, if you're on Facebook and whatnot, you saw that. Um, so she is doing well. Mom is doing well. And the Chappelles are just enjoying her as well as caring uh, for their family and one another. So just practically, that means uh, Pastor Eric Chappelle will be on a parental um, leave for the next five weeks just caring for his family. Uh, so we're rejoicing in, in her birth and in healthy baby being brought into the world. So I wanted to share that with all of you. Now let's look to uh, our message this morning. Our series for the new year is called Signs of Life, the Metrics of Spiritual Health. And we're asking a question. The question is this, what are the most important indicators of a genuine and growing faith that is alive? What are the metrics we should be paying close attention to as people and as a church? First Timothy is a great place to look to to answer that question because this church, a church that Paul knew well, he helped start this church, was going through a season where they were not healthy. There was a lot of unhealth happening in this church called Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. So what we have here in First Timothy is we have Paul. You could think of him, uh, the Apostle Paul, as an older, experienced physician who is guiding a younger physician, Timothy, on how to diagnose and how to treat issues of spiritual unhealth. Last two weeks, we looked at the first two metrics. Paul said, I want to begin, I want to talk about love. That's the most important metric of all. Last week, he shared his story as an example of a grace renewal story, which is an incredible sign of health. The more grace renewal stories are told in a community, the more healthy it is. Today, we look at another one of the most important signs of spiritual life and vitality, and that is prayer. In fact, if you look at verse 1 with me here, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, this is Paul coming out of his introductory comments right into his instructions. So he's beginning his instructions here, and he says, first of all, prayer. Now, this first of all is not first in a sequence, because as you read on, you realize there's no second of all. This is first in priority, first in importance. Paul says, prayer. Now, what this means, at least for this church, but I think in extension for ours and all other churches, is that this was the most important and the first 
practice they needed to pay attention to in order to stay and to become a healthy community. That's prayer. You might hear that and say, okay, uh, if, you've, if you're familiar with uh, Christianity, even if you're not, you might say, well, that makes sense. Prayer sounds like one of these things that is a sign of a spiritual life, a genuine spiritual life, and a growing healthy spiritual life. And you say, okay, that makes sense. Prayer is an important thing. But, as we'll see, what, pr- what, what Paul is describing here is not just prayer in a general sense. He's talking about prayer with others. So this is a a corporate prayer he's describing. And not just praying with others for each other, but praying with others for other people who are not a part of your community. And praying for lives of peace and wholeness. And praying for people to come to believe in Jesus who don't. So, this is very technical. This is a mouthful, but trust me, I'll explain this. What Paul is talking about here is corporate, intercessory, missional prayer. Yes, that's technical. I know it is a mouthful, but Paul is saying if you want to find a healthy Christian, if a church is going to grow and to become a healthy community, Paul says, first of all, I want you to practice corporate, intercessory, missional prayer. Now, that just sounds like the advanced course for most of us. As I was thinking about it this week, that sound, that's, that's pretty advanced. This is an area that uh, it's not new to me. It's something that I feel like I need to grow in a lot in my life. But maybe uh, for me, it's not necessarily the place where I'd say, let's look at this first. That sounds like advanced faith. But what we see is that in the book of Acts, in the history of the church, every major renewing movement of God where He brought fresh life, where He brought more and more people to consider the claims of Jesus and, and saw, we saw people over the history of the church come to embrace Jesus. Every movement like that began with this kind of prayer. So, let me encourage you, before you check out of this sermon and say, that is too advanced for me. I am not there yet spiritually. Let me encourage you just to hold on and see what Paul has to say for us. This, this type of prayer that Paul is describing, it is, as we'll come to see, it's kind of like, let me give you a, an image here, a metaphor, it's kind of like a, a spiritual superfood. If you've heard all the claims of superfoods out there, like whether it's kale or acai or whatever the newest superfood is, the claim is, it's not a scientific term, it's more of a marketing term, that if you have this food, you will lose weight, you will gain muscle, you will have energy, like it'll do all these miracle cures for you. Now, that's a little bit hyped up when it comes to food, but Paul is saying here that this kind of prayer, it's kind of like a spiritual superfood because it puts us in a receptive place for so much of what God wants to do in us, individually and corporately. Let me also say at the outset, whenever we talk about prayer, I want this to be said, I think it needs to be said that guilt will not make you pray more. So let's put guilt aside. But maybe seeing how prayer like this has the power to join us to each other, 
to join us to God and to join us to God's purpose in the world. Maybe that will move us more deeply into prayer like this. So let's see how this all works. We're going to look at what Paul has to say here from five different angles. This kind of prayer fosters spiritual health because of five different things. Who we pray with, who we pray for, what we pray for, why we pray, and who we pray to. And that's what we're going to look at this morning first. Who we pray with. From the context, it's clear that what Paul has in mind here is corporate prayer, prayer in community. So he's not talking here about private and personal prayer, but this is the beginning of a section on public worship. He talks later about church leadership, the church as the household of God. This is all about the corporate dynamics of the church and what it looks like. So although personal prayer is an indispensable part of a genuine, growing spiritual life, What Paul here is urging Timothy to is corporate prayer together. Now, maybe you're thinking something like this, praying by myself is hard. That's hard enough. Uh, Praying with others is even harder. Praying with others out loud is really hard for the majority of people. It's not comfortable It's not natural for us. It's kind of like when we're having a conversation on the phone with somebody and there's somebody else next to us who's like listening into that conversation and you can imagine that they're saying like, amen, good point. Yeah, that's right. You're just like, no, this this is my conversation. Why are you in this? That's how this kind of prayer can feel. And for me as a pastor, anytime I'm in a group of people, and for some reason there needs to be prayer, there's a meal or something like that, then unless there's another pastor around, everybody looks at me. It's time to pray. Yeah? Okay, fine, I'll pray. It's not always comfortable and easy for me either. Now, why would something so uncomfortable for us be such a high priority for God? Well, let's consider what's going on in this church. This church was struggling with conflict. We've saw that, uh, seen that the last two weeks. Because of this conflict, they were losing sight of the mission and the vision that God had called them to as a church. People were going in different directions. There were divisions, false teachers, disagreements, arguments. We read on and find out there was slander and all kinds of horrible things happening in this community. So Paul, like we said, like a spiritual doctor, prescribes praying together, in part, I think, as a way to heal these relationships and restore their vision and unity as a church. When it comes to relationships, there is something about hearing other people pray out loud that when you hear what another person has to say, in the presence of God and how they say it, you get a window inside of that person that you really can't get in any other way. This is why prayer is so important in a marriage, in families, and in a church, because you get to see, as it were, almost inside the soul of another person and say, oh, that's what's going on. That's who they really are. It's powerful. In addition to that, vision and unity is formed 
in prayer like this. There's something about Christians praying together that reminds everyone that what unites them is far greater and far more important than anything that they disagree about. There's a quote in the Reflection Quotes from a commentator, Donald Guthrie. He says, The wider the subjects for prayer, the larger becomes the vision of the soul that prays. And we might add, and the smaller the issues that we thought were so important become. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8, Paul is saying prayer is actually an antidote to anger and argument taking root in a person and in a community. He's talking to men in conflict specifically. He says, put aside all your anger and your arguments and pray. Because in the presence of God, the things we are angry about and arguing about are put into proper perspective. Thinking only goes so far. Talking through those arguments only goes so far. There's something only prayer can accomplish. He says, lift up your holy hands. What does that mean? I think it means that the call to pray with others reveals areas where we are not holy and we are not whole, and it leads to confession, and it leads to reconciliation between people. It's the power of prayer here. Uh, last week, one of my friends was here. His name's Greg. He's a pastor in another city, and he was telling me what, what he does in this city. He's in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he says he, along with a number of pastors, very different churches, different denominations, different approaches, they meet once a month. They get up high over their city, and they pray for their city. And he said, in that experience, they're not, they're not competing. They're not in rivalry with one another about whatever different perspectives they have. They remember why it is that they're there in the first place. I thought that was very powerful. This is what happens when we pray with others. This prayer, this kind of prayer is powerful because of who we pray with it heals relationships, it unites like nothing else, but this kind of prayer also brings life and vitality because of who we pray for. Look at verse 1. Paul says, these prayers like this should be made for everyone, everyone. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean you literally pray for all seven plus billion people on the planet? If there was such a phone book that had those names, are we supposed to just go through? Every person. Well, that obviously isn't what Paul means. It's impossible. It's too general and not specific. When Paul, what Paul says here, when he says everyone, he means everyone without exception. All kinds of people, no matter who they are or what they believe. This is a major theme here in this passage as well. The word all or everyone is used four times. And what we learn is that not only was this church dealing with division within and arguments and uh, conflict within. It was a church that was developing this elitist, insider type of attitude towards those outside of the church. So Paul here is repeating, this is for everyone, everyone, all, everyone. Just like prayer can heal relationships and restore vision and unity, this kind of prayer can keep a person and a church from becoming insular and ingrown, and oh, how we need that 
Oh, how I need that in my life. There's a tendency in all of us, in, in all of our churches, to just think about ourselves. In order to petition and pray and intercede for all kinds of people, what's, what's needed? You need to know all different kinds of people. You need to know people who are like you and not like you, who agree with you and don't agree with you, and who believe what you believe and don't. You need to know their needs, their concerns, to petition and intercede for them in any meaningful way. The application here is, you see, to follow the command to pray like this, you have to know the needs of people different than you. It's pushing you out of yourself. And there's something else here. Not only do you pray for their needs, and you pray for those who um, don't believe in Jesus to come to saving faith, you also, and this is very important, you give thanks for them. Do you see what it says? Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. This is the one type of prayer that's different than the rest. The first three words here are probably synonyms, very similar words, but then he says, also thanksgivings. We might just breeze by that and not think about it, but what Paul is saying here to Christians, my Christian friends, he says, give thanks for all kinds of people in your life who are not Christians. Together in a community before God, you acknowledge God's common grace that is coming to you and to the world through them. You're appreciating them. And whether they realize it and acknowledge it not, their talents, their gifts, the things they bring as blessings to you in the world, you're saying, thank you, God, for that. The church should thank God for them. Now, when you know the needs of all kinds of people, when you're praying for those needs, when you're thankful and you're recognizing and appreciating the gifts of all kinds of people as a community, imagine what happens over time. This community that cares about other people's needs and appreciates other people's gifts. That is the kind of church that people want to be a part of. That people on the outside go, well, that's interesting. You care about me and you appreciate me. Maybe I want to know more about why. Uh, we just prayed this morning for Anand Mahadevan, a church planter in New City, Mumbai, who's one of our mission partners. And you may know a little bit about his story, but he grew up um, not a Christian, didn't have much exposure to the Christian faith. Uh, but what made all the difference for him is when he was in school, he was uh, friends with a group of Christians, and he was struggling in school and overwhelmed by stress, and they just said, can we, can we pray for you? He's like, well, sure. Like, well, let's do it right now. And it was very simple. They just prayed for him. They prayed for him to do well on his test, prayed for his stress level to decrease. And there was something that happened in his heart while that prayer meeting was going on. He said, I want to know this God to whom they're praying. It's so simple, so powerful. Paul takes all of this. He applies it here to one specific group of people. He says, pray like this for kings and all those in authority. At the time, uh, the emperor was most likely Nero, who was known to be very cruel, uh, especially towards people of Christian faith. He was also known, has gone down in history, as one of the worst people ever, 
You can watch a YouTube video that I watched this week, What Made Emperor Nero the Most Evil Man? You can check that out if you want the history. Paul says, pray for the most evil man. Pray for him. And pray for all those in authority. You could say much more about this, but as application, we have been, we are in, and we will be in a very contentious political environment. Christians, the church has been either blamed or ridiculed, implicated, celebrated, and responded in all kinds of ways with, our, with, our, with regard to our relationship with the current political climate. Can I say this? I think maybe we should consider going back to the very beginning right here, 2 Timothy 1. First of all, pray, petition, intercede, and thank. What else? Well, maybe we should start there first and let God tell us what else. Who we pray with, who we pray for, and now what we pray for. Who we pray with can bring health and healing to relationships. It can strengthen our purpose and vision as a community. Who we pray for prevents a person and a church becoming insular and ingrown and unhealthy. I'm going to move on now from who to what. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about when I'm talking about praying together. Maybe you're envisioning if you've ever been a part of a prayer meeting or something like that, you may have had various experiences of what that is like. Sometimes you may have had this experience. You could go to a prayer meeting and everyone says, well, what should we pray about? And somebody says, uh, my great aunt hurt her toe. Let's pray for her. And somebody says, my, my fish, my pet, you know, his, his tail is getting bitten. Can we pray for my fish? That's happening in our house. So that's, that's a true one for me. <laughs> and we can pray, say, you know, pray for me to do well on a test. And we say, okay, let's, let's pray for all those things. And it's okay. We can be honest because we feel like that's good. But isn't there more that we should be praying for? Isn't there something else? I don't know if you felt that, but I have. Paul says here, in praying for others, we need to remember we're going to be praying on two levels. We can call one the subordinate and one the ultimate. Both prayers are important, very important and necessary. You see what he says here? He says, pray for what? A tranquil and quiet life. That doesn't sound like a radical prayer. Where Paul, who's trying to change the world through the revolutionary message of Jesus, he says, pray for a quiet and peaceful life. It's like what we read in Jeremiah 29.7 where God told his people, pray for peace and prosperity in the place where I have sent you. Not just for yourself but for everyone. Now, what we see here is that what Paul's saying is this is not just so you can live a quiet and peaceful life and everybody just leave me alone, give me my quiet space. Paul is saying we pray for these things so we can have the best environment to live out our faith publicly and so that we can devote ourselves to matters of ultimate importance. Godliness, what does godliness mean? It's kind of a very religious-sounding word. It really just means authentic and observable Christianity. You can plug that in when you see the word godliness. So, so we can live a life of godliness and dignity. The word dignity is a life of respect or gravitas, importance. If there's unrest and oppression like there is in so much of the world then and now, 
in a refugee crisis, in war, in all kinds of those things. You're just worried about surviving the next day. Paul is saying, pray. Pray for God's mercy, for peace and dignity, so that we can think about more than just surviving, more than just ourselves. We're thinking about how can we live an authentic and observable Christian life dedicated to matters of first importance. Those are our, what I would call our subordinate prayers that are subordinate to our ultimate intercessory prayers. In verse 3, Paul says what it is. It is that all kinds of people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the ultimate prayer because the ultimate need of every person is to come to know God through His Son, Jesus. God wants us to pray, and it's good to pray for both the subordinate prayers a good and peaceful life, and the ultimate prayer, that all might come to embrace Jesus as Savior. They come together. That's what we pray for. Why do we pray? This is a question that many of us have with prayer. Maybe we'll say, okay, I'll go to a prayer meeting. I'll pray with other people. But there's still this nagging question I have. Why do we pray? Does anything really happen? Paul says here, We pray because prayer moves God into action. He hears and He responds. The first three words used here for prayer, petitions, prayers, intercessions, it's all about asking God to do something, asking Him, act. And the assumption here and throughout the rest of the Bible is that God hears, He he answers, and He responds to these prayers. Jesus says to us, ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Prayer moves God into action. Prayer at the same time moves us out into mission. For a person in a church to align with God's will and His mission, it doesn't just take place with good theology, knowing what it is, what is God's mission, or even good strategy. What are we supposed to do? That only goes so far for our mind to be convinced and our actions to be aligned. There's something else. The heart needs to be set on fire. And that only happens in prayer. As another pastor said, we can build the altar, but God must send the fire. That happens in prayer. That's why we pray. It moves God. It moves us. It moves a church. But there's a third thing here that is very important. It has to do with a lot of our questions about prayer. Prayer moves God in us, but it also makes it possible for us to rest in God's sovereign will. The question comes up often with prayer. If only what God wills to happen will happen, why pray? Right? You've thought of that, I would imagine. Or if this is what God wants, what He says here, it's what He desires. It's what He wills. And why does it happen? Even if I do pray for it. Now, I want to answer this question practically, not theologically. If you have that question, we'll do a Q&A after the service next week, and you can ask it. It's helpful to distinguish between two types, uh, two, two ways that we can talk about the will of God, God's will, God's heart. One is, we could call it the decorative will of God what He decrees to happen, what will happen, and the perceptive will of God, 
what he says he, he desires, what he wants, God's, God's commands. So, to make it practical, we can pray, your will be done, exclamation point, petition. Make your will be done here. And we can pray, your will be done. Surrender. Whatever it is, Lord, your will be done. Came across a helpful story with a helpful illustration of this uh, this week as I was reading. Um, some of you may be familiar with Francis and Edith Schaefer. They were, they were a couple uh, who did ministry together. They formed these little communities for people to come and seek truth. They called them uh, Libri Communities. And uh, they've written a lot. It's been very helpful, their writings to me. Edith Schaefer wrote a book called The Life of Prayer. And she describes a time in her life where she was setting aside time to pray. And she got really stuck. She got stuck because she was thinking, God is sovereign, but He asks us to pray. And she was kept thinking about, I want to ask God for this. I think He wants me to ask for this, but I keep coming up to this place where I feel like I have to say, if it's your will, if it's your will. And she's like, I don't, I'm just, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? And then she said, she tells the story. She says she looked up. She was laying in the Swiss Alps somewhere in the mountains and saw these two trees going straight up. They were very straight trunks. So these two trees running parallel. She saw these two trees running parallel and then their branches met in the skies. And she said, that's it. Two parallel lines meeting in the heavens. I don't have to worry, she said, about how to reconcile this struggle in my puny little mind of mine that's above my my pay grade. They are reconciled by God alone. Now, here's what she said. She said, one of the trees, we could think about praying up the tree of God's sovereign will. These prayers are God. I submit my will to your will. I don't know what your will is. I submit my agenda and my purpose to your purpose. I surrender, I submit. That's praying up the tree of God's sovereign will. Then she said she actually went over to the other tree, put her feet on that tree, and that's praying up the tree of God's revealed will, what He commands, what He says He wants, what His heart is for, what does He want for us in the world, and asking boldly according to His promises. As far as we know them, ask anything and everything without having to say, I don't know if this is your will. I don't know if this is what you want to do. You just ask boldly and say, this is what you said, so I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to do it. And you let God reconcile those in the heavens and how he seeks in his wisdom to answer. That was very helpful for me. So here Paul is saying, we need to pray with others. We need to pray for everyone. He gives us insight into what we are to pray and why we are to pray. That's a lot of reasons for us to reconsider, maybe, corporate intercessory missional prayer. But I have to confess, as I already have, this is, this is a weakness in my spiritual life, this kind of prayer. In the last two years, um, I've been growing to see that I think it is like a spiritual superfood that I need, that we all need. And I've come to believe that without this type of prayer, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's hard, it's almost impossible 
for the health that we want to see in our lives spill out in us and through us as a church. But what I've also come to see is that without this final piece, the fifth point, this kind of prayer won't stick, it won't last, it hasn't for me. And that's who we pray to. As important and as vital as all the other things we've just talked about, who we pray with and for, what and why we pray, if we don't have this, we won't make it a part of our lives. It won't have the power to release all its superpower into our spiritual lives. Ultimately, the only thing that will draw us into this kind of prayer is knowing who we pray to, who He is, and what He's done. In verses 5 and 6, Paul is taking us to this reason for prayer. Our failures to pray, my failures to pray for myself and others comes down to forgetting and not believing, verses 5 and 6. He says here, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Verse 5 begins with the word for. He's giving the reason, the explanation. Underneath all this prayer, he says, for this. Now, how does this work? For us in our prayer lives, who we believe God is and what He has done is foundational. And most of us struggle with the original foundational lie about who God is and what He has done. And that lie is this. God is holding back His best. God is holding back His best. A lot of us struggle with what Martin Luther said about prayer. It's in your reflection quotes. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying a hold of His willingness. Let me share a story to illustrate this. I, I borrowed this from a pastor who said he borrowed it from another pastor. So who knows who invented this story? But can you imagine uh, this scenario, that there is a father who takes his son into the best and grandest toy store of them all. I think it's still there, FAO Schwartz in New York City. I don't know if it's still there, but the best one, the biggest one. You say, we're going to go to this store. And you go around and you look at all the toys all the electronics, you get really excited and you play with all of them. And having gone through the whole store, the father tells his son, you're getting none of this. Now, some of you are like, that's good parenting. <laughs> but that's heartbreaking for the child. Sometimes I think that's how prayer feels to us. We hear about all the promises and the blessings of God, all the good things He intends for our lives in Christ. It's like walking around in the heavenly toy store. I could ask for this, and God might do that. And look at God's heart. And then we feel like we come back out of prayer with just like a little tiny green soldier. Like that's all we got. Like for five cents, like this is all I got. What about all those other riches? What about all those toys? And we're afraid of prayer because of this. Do you know what Paul's saying in verses 5 and 6? Paul is saying God has already given us His best. 
You can trust He's not holding back. Soren Kierkegaard said, this is our comfort because God answers every prayer, for He either gives us what we pray for or something far better. The reason we can know that's true is because He's already given the best. How does this work? Look at the logic here. There is one God, Paul says, one almighty and holy God. Do we believe that? If you do, he moves on further. He says there's one mediator between this holy God and our broken and sinful lives. There's one way back to God. There's a person who stands as a go-between, someone who brings our prayers to God and someone who brings God's answers to us. It is the man, Christ Jesus. He came down, who was God himself. He entered in into our needs. He knows our needs better than we do. He's not a distant God. And He gave Himself as a ransom for all. Can we let that sink in? He gave Himself as a ransom for all, on behalf of all. He says, I will take your place. I will take the condemnation, the separation, and the judgment, and the unanswered prayer, and the feeling of forsaken by God. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to give you Myself, my place at the right hand of God. He always hears my prayers. I will absorb the cost so you can be free. Here's what I want us to see. I'm going to close with this. No one ever prayed for this, verses 5 and 6. No one in the Old Testament, no one ever dreamed up a religion that said, pray like this. Who would dare pray? One God, holy and almighty, Come down. Come to me. You better know my needs. Take all my sin. Take my judgment. Take my brokenness and give me all of your righteousness. Give me all of your holiness. Give me all of your grace for free. Just give me you. You take all that's bad in me. Just give me all of you. And I'll take nothing to the table except my need and my sin. If you believe in God, one holy, true, and almighty God, who would think this? Who would dare to pray this prayer? But this is what God has done without any of us asking for it. This is the gospel. If we believe the gospel is true, this is the God whom we pray to. He is not holding back. He did not hold back His very own self, His very own Son. So we are provided for and protected and loved and known and accepted and secure. He is trustworthy so we can think beyond ourselves and begin to pray. Other people, for other people, that they might come to know this mediator who brings their entire lives into the presence of the God of abundant grace. Jesus is the one who mediates all my prayers. He perfects them, and He brings God's best answer to us. We can trust Him for us and for others. Let me close with this final exercise. I'm going to ask us to do something uncomfortable. We're going to be biblical literalists here to apply this, just, just right now. Uh, I want you in a moment to lift up your hands like Paul says to do in verse 8. You can just go like this or this or this or that. I want you to think of one person, maybe more people, at least one person whom you know needs to know in a very real and personal way 
the overflowing love and grace in Jesus. I know this is a little uncomfortable and a little awkward, but after we're done, we're going to have prayed for, I don't know, 115, 20 people as God asked us to in this text, trusting that he will answer them the best way he knows how. We're going to pray for them in silence after I read this encouragement from John Newton. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever dare ask too much. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that the person, the persons we're praying for might come to know you deeper, that you might meet their needs, and that you might draw them deeper into relationship with you through Jesus, your Son, in whose name we ask. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close with a final song together.